0: And thanks for listening. What were the big climate stories of the past year? Climate One conversations with oil companies and environmentalists, Republicans and Democrats are recorded at the Commonwealth Club of California and hosted by Greg Dalton. I'm Devin Strolovich. The recent campfire in California's Butte County, which killed 88 people and burned nearly 14,000 structures, was the most destructive wildfire in the state's history. Within two hours of the start of that fire, there
2: were 100 spot fires starting in downtown paradise. Our firefighters spent all of their time, that first 12 plus hours, just keeping the
0: people from being overtaken by the fire. Tom Porter is Chief of Strategic Planning at the California Department of Forestry and Fire. He and his Cal Fire colleagues are the first line of defense for people living on the front lines. But the campfire wasn't just a big story for those in immediate danger.
3: That smoke level over those 10 to 12 days changed all of our minds about fire and just the horror that was coming uh, through the media. It was eye-opening to everybody in a very visceral way. Maggie Kelly is professor of environmental science policy at UC Berkeley.
0: Smoke from the campfire blanketed the San Francisco Bay area with unhealthy air for nearly two weeks, just a year after wildfires in nearby wine country had caused similar conditions.
4: We're going to see other natural hazards hitting us with greater frequency in the
0: same way that we're experiencing fire. Keith Gillis is chair of the California Board of Forestry and Fire Protection and professor of forest economics at UC Berkeley. He joined Maggie Kelly and Tom Porter on the Commonwealth Club stage to talk about what became one of the year's breakthrough climate stories. But first, Greg sits down with veteran climate reporter David Roberts to ask about the year's other big stories. Roberts earned a wide following covering climate for Grist. He eventually got so burned out that he walked away from the climate beat for a time, but he's back now writing some of the most incisive climate articles anywhere for Vox. So, David Roberts, what are the
1: top climate stories in your view of 2018?
5: I hate to say this just because I hate to give him more oxygen, but, you know, I think you have to go with Trump as the number one. I mean, he's rolling back regulations. He's gumming up uh, international climate negotiations as we speak, and uh, in Poland and just insulting partners. He's got Rick Perry at the Department of Energy traveling around the world trying to sell people our fracked gas exports. He's embraced fossil fuels. I mean, that's like Trump is 10 stories in one, but if I can just group them all under him, uh, I would make that the, the first one. Second, and this is sort of a a late-breaking story, kind of a late contender but has been really impressive to me, is the sort of explosion in uh, visibility and popularity of the concept of a Green New Deal. You know, I think there's been kind of a lack on the left or in the Democratic Party of a big positive climate policy vision since cap-and-trade, you know, died in two thousand nine. Really, there's been some flailing around, but no real consensus on what comes next or what the, what the big bid ought to be. And I think sort of gr- the Green New Deal has kind of come along and and uh, filled that hole. Like it's a, it's been amazing to me to see people sort of uh, gather around it. And the third story, which I think is slightly boring to point out, but I point it out every year anyway, is just the sort of ongoing mind boggling decline in costs of almost all the the key especially in electricity of almost all the key sort of clean energy technologies like no matter how many times we say it you know solar still continues to get cheap faster than anyone expects and that's true for you know you're seeing it this year too in offshore wind which which finally arrived in america was a pretty big deal and is already getting much cheaper than expected batteries, storage are getting cheaper, faster than expected. So that's, I don't know that any particular event uh, this year symbolizes that perfectly, but it's ongoing and continuing past where anyone expected it to continue.
1: Let's drill into those. That You wrote a story earlier in the year on affordable clean energy, picked up on some Reporting from Nathaniel Johnson at Grist were used to be noting that the EPA cited uh, that the affordable clean energy plan which is the replacement to the Obama electricity plan EPA said it would save 6.4 billion dollars in compliance costs for energy suppliers and it also said right there in its report that it would raise health costs by 16 to 75 billion dollars so <laughs> their own numbers are putting it right there that what the, that if, if for those who care to dig into the reports uh, that their numbers are saying that they're going to cost more public harm, but they're going to save some companies and money. They're doing this right out in public.
5: Yeah. I mean, that's kind of the meta story of the Trump years, isn't it? Is is everything that the sort of US conservative movement has been doing and thinking and wanting has been utterly stripped of all pretense, right? I mean, you don't even have to dig into the report. It's been well known for years, ever since the EPA started sort of analyzing how the Clean Air Act is doing, it's been known for years that restrictions on air pollution pay for themselves many times over in health savings. Like that's been a consistent result of every analysis ever in history. And it uses government numbers. So they don't have any other set of numbers to use you know so if they're going to roll back pollution regulations that's what the numbers are going to say now the one thing i would say is this is one case where you see the lingering effects of competent bureaucracy that preceded trump right like they did good work and they figured out how much air you know particulate pollution costs and how much it hurts people and they put that on record if trump is in power long enough if he runs the epa long enough eventually that he'll get rid of that too right i mean he will he will complete his conversion of the bureaucracy into sort of ideological hacks and then you know those numbers then they'll have a different set of numbers right but we're sort of in this weird period where It's a new government, but they're still using a lot of the kind of civil servants and a lot of the sort of information that the previous administration uh, uh, generated.
1: There are positive stories. You noted that U.S. emissions, greenhouse gas emissions are down 28 percent from 2005. The range for the Obama Clean Power Plan was of 19 to 32 percent reduction by 2030. So already the United States, despite Trump, is meeting uh, the Clean Power Plan. That's a very positive story. Despite Trump, the Obama goals are being met. Even though Trump's attacking them, they're happening.
5: Yes, but note that Trump is simultaneously attacking the regulations that, that produced those declines in emissions and celebrating those declines in emissions as justification for why they don't need to do more, right, or why they don't need to stay in the Paris Treaty. They're sort of taking credit for them even as they try to destroy them. I mean, this is not necessarily a story that environmentalists like to hear, but the real fact of the matter is that two or three trends helped reduce emissions in America. One was fracking, was the production of an enormous amount of cheap natural gas. And that's more than anything else what has killed coal. And then renewables, you know, got so cheap so fast and efficiency always is underestimated and always ends up playing a bigger role than people think it's going to. And so all the, you know, all that stuff kind of came together and this air pollution policy or even or even climate policy or even energy policy is is basically a marginal driver compared to those big economic and population and technology trends ultimately have much more effect than these decisions so so yes i mean it's a it's it's incredibly positive that those trends are going in the right direction but you know and and i know and the ipcc knows that it's not enough <laughs> it's not enough not fast enough
1: Right. And some of the macro trends are going in the other directions. Global emissions are tip- ticking up after being soft for five years. So there are some very troubling uh, signs in the, in the macro numbers that we're seeing. So on the Green New Deal, that has kind of captured imagination. There's a very, you know, telegenic, charismatic uh, front person, person who was working in a restaurant and knocked off a, a, a uh, you know, senior uh, congressman and Now she's the flag carrier and, you know, uh, leading sit-ins in Nancy Pelosi's office. So let's drill into that one a little bit. I mean, are we seeing 2008 all over again with Green Jobs and Van Jones? And I feel a little bit like I've seen this movie before.
5: (laughs) Well... This is sort of the curse of being in climate policy for long enough is is that there are no new stories left, right? Like you get this fresh wave of young people who come along and say, hey, maybe let's talk about it from an economic point of view rather than polar bears. I'm like, oh... I wish we had thought of that. But I mean I think the but the political reality is you try these things over and over again until they work, right? And it wasn't like the 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 sort of Zeitgeist for whatever reason wasn't really ready in in 2008 for that message and I don't think that message was really quite coherent and as worked out at that point. And also I think you can't distinguish the Green New Deal, as it's playing a role today in politics, from the sort of resurgent popularity and power of the left wing of the Democratic Party. Like, that's the thing is like, Van Jones was trying to sort of advance the green jobs narrative within this larger context of kind of caution and the idea that we had to use market mechanisms and we had to make the, you know, bipartisanship and all the sort of uh, institutional caution that the sort of uh, characterized things back then. I think that's mostly gone. And so, the green jobs message has become something much more muscular and sweeping. You know, there's a huge investment piece now. And, and you have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez out saying, why should we have to explain how to pay for this? You guys don't explain how to pay for your tax cuts or your giant military bloat, right? This idea that Democrats uniquely have to, like, take unpleasant medicine alongside anything good they want. <laughs> you know, she just rejects that. And that's new. You know, so I think the the program itself it has changed a bit, and the political circumstances have changed wildly.
1: <laughs> In fact, you note know that former Republican Senate leader Trent Lott and John Bro, uh, another uh, Democratic former senator, who. Both have represented the oil industry. Trent Lott told the Wall Street Journal e- earlier this year, the tide is turning, unquote, on this issue. And um, there's the Baker-Schultz fee and dividend plan. Some of the the elders of the George H.W. Uh, Bush era of Republicans with support from Walmart and others are coming forward with their own plan to price carbon. So does that suggest that carbon pricing is is uh, you know rising on the agenda on both the left and the right, in which there's a potential bipartisan solution on this somewhere,
5: a deal to be made? Well, that's a a real interesting question. I mean, I guess what I'd say about the current kind of climate politics landscape is I've never seen it so fluid and I've never seen it less clear sort of who's with who and what policy counts as the strong one versus the sort of weak neoliberal sellout policy. Like no one's even clear what those categories are in terms of climate policy, but it's very, very fluid. So I would say the one, the one thing to say is the fact that you hear a bunch of oil companies and a bunch of retired Republicans and, and, and a small handful even of active uh, Republicans turning around on this issue and supporting a carbon tax is because it's very clear which way the wind is blowing. Like no one, I don't think anyone thinks anymore that 5 years from now or 10 years from now this issue will have faded away <laughs> and no one will care anymore you know what i mean like there's no they're not going to be able to and the sort of just straight denialism that they've sort of been winking at and getting away with uh, up to now is is not working anymore it's making them look like idiots so there's a sense among the sort of smarter, more strategic uh, crowd among conservatism—what's left of it—that it, that they've got to do something new on this. They need some new position, and you sort of see people like kind of Marco Rubio sort of flailing around, looking for the right rhetorical. You know, sort of uh, a stance. He's like, you know, the, we know the climate is changing, right? I'm not a denier. I'm not a denier. We know the climate is changing. We're just not sure how much people play a role, which, of course, as you and I know, is a lie. That's one thing we're actually very sure about. And then the second part of the message is all the solutions will destroy the economy, which is always their response to any attempt to make the life of american citizens better in any way and you know that that as a response to any climate policy is the most predictable thing in the world but the fact that they're retreating to that you know like there's going to be a wholesale retreat on the right from the sort of pure intransigence let's say that they've been using up to now and there's going to have to be some compromise so yeah like and this is a dynamic too that i pointed out in a different article but i think is really important and interesting to understand is precisely those republicans who are most uh open to reasonable discussion on climate change they are that way because they're in purple districts right they are that way because they need to be that way to appeal to their sort of moderate uh uh, voters but of course it is exactly those republicans in vulnerable purple districts who are most likely to get picked off in in a wave election like we just had so so what you're seeing is the republican party getting whittled down to its most extreme elements so even if the kind of larger republican world might be shifting a little bit. The actual Republican caucus in Congress is only getting nuttier in the meantime.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the big climate stories of 2018. Coming up, more of Greg Dalton's conversation with Vox reporter David Roberts, plus a panel discussion about the impacts of this year's record-breaking wildfires.
3: Everybody was talking about this as a connected to those people in paradise. We were connected to everybody. I think it really grounded us.
0: That's up next when Climate One continues. We continue now with Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking to David Roberts, a staff writer at Vox, about the big climate stories of the past year. What was your most impactful or
1: most gratifying story that you look back that you did in 2018?
5: Well, um, I really am really, really proud of and psyched about one that I actually just put up fairly recently, which is a long uh, sort of illustrated explainer on grid architecture, (laughs) which might not... (laughs) <laughs> sound like the sexiest thing and probably that's was, sexy yeah. and was probably not the sort of traffic monster on it's not one of these sort of like first week traffic monsters but it's one of these sort of in-depth explainers that i think is going to be very useful for professionals in the industry and and for schools you know where people will go learn about this stuff and it's basically about you know how grid architecture was built around centralized power plants and one-way power flows, sort of the old model, and how you have all these distributed energy resources popping up on the edge of the grid now, and you have two-way power flows and power exchange, you know, enabled by all this fancy technology, and grid architecture just needs to be rethought and redesigned to accommodate those resources. So to, to my mind, that's kind of the biggest underlying structural story going on in clean energy today and one reason I really love working at Vox is like there's not a lot of other outlets that would let me <laughs> take a couple of weeks and write 6,000 words <laughs> on, on on grid architecture but you know like I've gotten great feedback it's one of those things with like a, a, a small audience but the audience really really loves it. <laughs>
1: David, I remember many years ago when you were riding at Grist and you burnt out and walked away and you went away, I don't know where you went for a couple of years and then you you came back. So, you know, looking at, you know, the, the dark news these days, some of these trends, I'm just curious, you know, how you're doing, how you keep yourself from getting getting too doom and gloom. It's something I personally struggle with, you know, sleepless nights uh, before and after programs. How do you keep yourself fresh to, to stare at these numbers and these trends every day?
5: <laughs> well, I mean, the, the main thing I personally did is what I was doing is working all day every day, uh, you know, which is too much time to be immersed in the kind of stuff we we study <laughs> and write about. And honestly, too much time to be working Period. So, just for personally, my circumstances were: a, I started working from home, uh, and I and I have worked from home ever since. B, I've I came to peace with the idea that most of my writing happens at night. Most of my most of my good thinking and my writing happens between like 10 p.m. and 2 a.m. So I just mm. take. So now I just I quit. And I was just sitting at my computer all day in the morning and afternoon pretending to be around because my boss wanted me to be when I was doing all my work at night. So so what I do now is like I work a little bit in the morning and I just take afternoons to myself. I do yoga. I've taken a, don't get me started. I don't want to be one of those guys, but I highly recommend yoga. Uh, and, you know, i am taking my dog on long walks and really just like having afternoon time. For myself and to chill out, and and then so that I come back to work at night, and I don't feel like I'm like at the end of a marathon. I feel like I'm sort of coming fresh to my second shift, and uh just getting more sleep and becoming more flexible and becoming more physically fit has had an enormous effect on my mental uh, uh, sharpness. Like it's really, I mean, this is you know, this is not a revelation, I guess, but like. Your physical health. If you're if you're in this sort of industry where you need to be thinking a lot, you know, thinking and talking and writing a lot, uh, your physical health really does matter.
1: Just last question, Dave Roberts. What are you looking forward to uh, covering in 2019? What the stories ahead on the horizon? You're looking at tackling next year that you think will be exciting.
5: Well, uh, as a as a longtime politics nerd, uh, these you know, if you can sort of set aside the uh, the apocalyptic consequences lurking, lurking in the background just on a purely sort of uh, a dramatic level. Politics is fascinating these days. And seeing how divided government works with Trump in power versus Nancy Pelosi, like that's fascinating. Like seeing how much this young energized climate movement can pull Pelosi is fascinating. And how far she can pull her caucus that's fascinating. And so, you know, this is all jockeying in preparation for 2020. So of course, like there's 572 Democrats lining up to run for president in, in 2020, and they're all going to be making moves over the next year. So just as like someone who appreciates just the, the spectacle of politics, it is going to be a fascinating a- a year full of nonstop action. Like for people who wanted a respite from the sort of relentlessness uh, of the news of the last two years, I don't think that's coming.
1: You're in Washington, the Seattle area. Uh, your governor Jay Inslee is probably one of the, after Jerry Brown, I would say one of the politicians in the country that cares most deeply, knows most deeply the climate issue. Potential presidential contender. You think he gets in? If he does, will he be able to put climate on the, on the, um, the agenda for the debate?
5: Oh, he's running, or, <laughs> or let's let's say he's he's. Definitely looking into it. You know, I don't, I don't know if he'll make the final decision to jump in, but he's I think he's been uh, had his eyes, you know, uh, slightly higher than than where he is his whole career. Uh, so, yeah, he'd be running and he would definitely put climate at the center. But I think the thing is, like, I don't think you're going to get a Democratic nominee at the end of this process running in 2020 who is not listing climate among their top two or three issues i don't i, I just think the party has shifted the the zeitgeist the, the society has shifted you know climate <laughs> has shifted so, uh, everything has shifted and i don't think it's i don't think it's possible to be a democrat without being sincerely not just not just in a hand-wavy way, but sincerely committed to doing something big about this problem. I think that's going to be true of whoever the candidate is.
0: David Roberts, thanks for coming on Climate One. Thanks a lot, it was fun. Greg Dalton has been talking to Vox reporter David Roberts about covering climate in 2018. You're listening to Climate One. We turn now to one of the year's breakthrough stories, as Greg welcomes a panel of wildfire experts to talk about preparing for a future of more intense and more frequent wildfires. Keith Gillis, Chair of the California Board of Forestry and Fire Protection. Maggie Kelly, Professor of Environmental Science Policy at UC Berkeley. And Tom Porter, Chief of Strategic Planning at the California Department of Forestry and Fire, or CAL FIRE. Here again is your host, Greg Dalton.
1: Tom Porter, you live this, you know, you're a professional fire person. Take us to the front lines and, and some of the moments, you know, uh, what it's like to be there through these, this, over time, some of these wildfires in California.
2: Yeah. And and I really wanted to kind of take the opportunity to kind of take you through a little piece of time again. Um, 1970, I was just a little kid and (laughs) I was growing up in the mountains of San Diego. And I remember vividly watching for three, maybe four days, a plume of smoke move across the southern horizon. And it moved from due south of my home way off toward the coast. And I when I was of age and learned about what fires are and where, that I lived in fire country, found that that was the Laguna fire 1970 in San Diego at the time. And for many years after the largest fire in California history, that fire kind of framed my uh, upbringing as as far as what fire was knowing all that move forward college. UC Berkeley, Uh, I was (laughs) Keith's student (laughs) among a few others of us. Um, The tunnel fire. These two events, so that was 1991. There's 21 years. Those were career fires. Both of those. Were career fires for firefighters, one that you would see once, maybe twice in a career. If you were lucky and you would be able to carry that through your career and be able to talk with all the all the firefighters uh, that were coming up about your career fire and what it means and what you need to be ready for and and train for. Okay, now it's 2003. I'm a I'm a professional forester and firefighter uh, back in San Diego and uh, the Cedar fire breaks and I watch a fire burn not exactly where the the Laguna fire was, but over the same distance, about a 35 mile distance in 16 hours, not in three days. At that point in time, I knew there was a change and we were in a very similar kind of weather pattern. Then we're just coming off a drought. We had tree mortality in the Southern California mountains, much like the Southern uh, Sierras have uh, uh, the last couple of years. And we had this fire that that dwarfed the size of the Laguna fire and did it in a shorter period of time. Fast forward. Career fires now every 10 years, that's multiple in a career. And then you get into the late 2000s and we have fires that are occurring in the 50 to 100,000 acre realm, which was kind of the benchmark place for a career fire somewhere between 50 and 100,000 acres. Now we're having multiple 100,000 acre fires every year. So there is a change and the change is migrating. We saw it first in Southern California. We're seeing it migrate north Uh, and it is very much related to what's happening with the climate and so. Preparing for that is kind of where we find ourselves. We are behind behind the curve, but we have been seeing it. We have been watching. We are understanding that there are changes. And so I'm afraid uh, of where we are and what we've what we saw with the campfire Um, at the campfire. We saw a fire again that broke in an area that was inaccessible and By uh, modeling and all of our planning, 12 hours would be a very short period of time to get where it got to in two hours. Mm -hmm. And we were thinking more of like it was a day or two and not on that day. We knew we had problems on that day, but we had planned that community extensively for evacuations. We knew we had an evacuation problem. A new state highway was built to service that community, to get people in and out of there. Uh, We spent $7 million over the last several years on fuel reduction project work. It was a very fire adapted culture in that community. And still, within two hours of the start of that fire, there were 100 spot fires starting in downtown paradise between the people that were in the early stages, the staggered uh, evacuation that we we had planned for get these people out first, then those people, then the next people. They got stuck behind the fire that had already passed them because it was embers dropping out in front of their evacuation. And so our our firefighters spent all of their time that first 12 plus hours uh, getting people out of the way. Bulldozers were not cutting line. They were pushing cars off of roads to clear them so other cars could get out. Firefighters were dragging people out of their cars, herding people who were running into parking lots of uh, box stores and other large parking lot areas where they could get people reasonably safe for a short period of time and defending the life. They weren't defending those structures. They were just keeping the people from being overtaken by the fire. Fire was burning around. Then it moved the people off. And that is the environment we find ourselves in. And we are and will be continuing to work with technology to further our understanding. Um, We are looking hard at better detection measures with cameras. They're fixed also uh, aerial surveillance uh, and then persistent satellite imagery so we can watch and understand what's going on more real time, but also detect those starts. Now, the one caution I have about that is if we put every fire out at a small size, we're going to be right where we got ourselves to 100 years from now. So we've been 100 years of of heavy fire suppression, putting every single fire out as fast as we can. It we have overgrown areas, so we need to balance that with fuel reduction. Some of that is going to have to be by manual means in in some fashion, uh, but we need to use more prescribed fire and we need to work toward an acceptance of Prescribe fire to manage the fuels so that we don't end up in this uh, scenario. Again, 50 to 100 years from now, uh, should we be so lucky to have that opportunity?
1: Maggie Kelly, what are some of the new technologies that you're working with that can give us visibility into the fire areas, the, the risks? You know, what can homeowners look to to see how their relative risk? You know, maybe I've cleared my yard, but geez, my neighbor's got a lot of fuel load next door. What tools are, are emerging for this?
3: There are a lot of very exciting uh, new technologies emerging in this arena. I'm a geographer by training, and I'm fascinated by maps. And maps and disasters are critical friends. So every successful disaster response really starts with a map. And we can think about mapping pre-fire and during fire and post-fire and in all of those, there are some new technologies coming um, online that can be useful. Uh, we've heard a lot about the issues behind the new abnormal of fires, the buildup of fuels, the, the drying out of the vegetation. In 2018, there are going to be two new satellites launched that are targeting those two things, measuring forest fuels with uh, satellite-based air uh, uh, laser device, which is very exciting to really be able to measure forest fuel accurately, and then forest moisture. These are two um, sensors uh, that are going to be on board the International Space Station launched by uh, NASA, which is very exciting. It's called JEDI. Um, So pre-fire, we've got some stuff coming up. Tom also mentioned being able to detect these early ignitions early enough to put them out is going to be critical. Also, just the better mapping of fire hazard across the landscape at fine scales, at household scales, and mapping fire risk. How is an individual house impacted from their neighbor, et cetera? All of these things are are coming online. They exist. They're getting better. We've got to get them out to you guys and to the community um, faster. So in all of these pre, during, and post-fire, I think communication and outreach is critical, and maps play a huge role um, there during fire, we do amazing things. CAL FIRE does amazing things, building these fire perimeters so that we can help with evacuation and these, this harrowing story we just heard about. Um, and post-fire, we we have a lot of technology to look at the actual impact of these individual burns. We do these from um, satellite-based uh, remote sensing. There's been a satellite or a series of satellites that the U.S. launched 40 years ago. It's called Landsat. and it's still up there, and it's still cranking, and it's still great, and it provides a global, standardized look at uh, the impact and the intensity of burns. So all of these things together form this, um, you know, very sophisticated mapping capacity that can be brought to bear uh, at for fires and other disturbances. But we've also got to think about ways to enable all of you. These guys are the front, front line of the fires, but you guys are the next front line. And so we've got to be able to find ways to get these technologies in your hands so that we can have people respond quicker when there is an emergency, such as something like these new normal fires.
0: You're listening to a Climate One conversation about the breakthrough stories of 2018. Coming up, Greg Dalton hears more about adapting to the new abnormal of more frequent, more intense wildfires. What we have
2: modeled is not what's happening. We modeled what we expected to happen based on
0: the past, and that's not what's been happening. That's up next, when Climate One continues. You're listening to Climate One. Greg Dalton is talking about one of the biggest climate stories of 2018, the wildfires in the American West, with Tom Porter, Chief of Strategic Planning at the California Department of Forestry and Fire, (CalFire), Maggie Kelly, Professor of Environmental Science Policy at UC Berkeley, and Keith Gillis, Chair of the California Board of Forestry and Fire Protection. Here's Greg.
1: Keith Gillis, a lot of the country lives paying a lot of attention to hurricane warnings, weather warnings, that sort of thing. Uh, You know, fire risk warnings. They kind of we don't really pay attention to them. We're not sure what what it what it means. What should we do? Are we going to entering a world where fire warnings need to be on the uh, leading the news on the front page of the newspaper, pay a lot more attention to them?
4: Well, you know, yes. And the interesting thing is populations do learn from experience with natural hazards but with the fires uh, we have almost too much information and so i am worried that uh, it sounds uh, as though tornadoes happen in the summer something like that so we have to make sure that the messages uh, have the right response uh, we're lucky in that we've seen uh, enough evidence that people need to pay attention to the warnings but i'm not sure that our messaging is right yet that some of the messaging we've done was really developed as interagency communication and so we need to work on how we communicate to the public i do think the fire agencies have done uh you know working with other emergency services people and the police a better job of communicating uh actionable information to people in real time in the last couple of years. There's there's actually a change in the nature of the briefings of the information they're getting out. But uh, we need people to respond uh, in ways that will inconvenience them more. But we need to make sure the signals are right. And I think that's the balance the agencies are struggling with in terms of evacuation notices is what's the right level of alarm to raise in what situation uh, and not actually have people become uh, so accustomed to the message that they fail to take the actions you're trying to precipitate on their part. Tom Porter,
1: that was a problem in New Orleans before Katrina. People didn't evacuate. They said, "Ah, oh, we've heard this before. It won't be as bad as they're saying. People stayed.
2: Yeah. And, and that is something we worry about and we've seen as backlash. Uh, often when we have a big fire, um, the inconvenience uh, leads to future uh, lack of wanting to go through that inconvenience again. Some people leave their home, they're gone. They have to be gone for a week or, or longer. They come back and their home is fine. Uh, their their neighborhood is fine. And we are finding in some cases people have decided next time I'm not going. Uh, my dad, who lives in, in rural San Diego, same house that I watched that uh, Laguna fire from, he is pretty sure, sure that he doesn't want to be evacuated again. He's been evacuated in the last 10 years three different times and has been away from his house for uh, a week or more at a time. And, and I keep telling him, go early. Um, but he, 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 it's hard to convince my own dad. <laughs> uh, of this <laughs> and and, and uh, i would think he'd be listening but
4: <laughs> if, if i could jump I in know. on that there's no one measure of destructiveness for a wildfire there are really three that we tend to throw around one is the size of the fire uh, but that's a distant third uh, intermediate is structure loss and that's terrible but the first criteria is public safety And if the public isn't getting information on which they act appropriately, we're not actually managing for the the most important of these three criteria for destructiveness, which is public safety. That uh, for us to live safely in a wonderful environment that is our ecology is driven by fire in this state. That's where we live. Um, for us to to live safely in that environment we need any time there's an evacuation notice the public's response to generally just be great i'm out of here and we need them to be prepared with go bags and so forth so that they can effectively leave because if we're looking at the loss of life it's the evacuation phase it's the early period when the fire service the police are doing everything they can to manage public safety uh, and fighting the fire is is
2: sort of a very distant goal at that point. So, Tom, I yeah, I I was just I was thinking as we've been going through this, if you could stretch time and say 12 hours from now, there is going to be an earthquake uh, that is going to uh, severely damage the peninsula. If we could say it's going to happen in 12 hours in eh, 98% chance. Would you leave? And I think where we are with we're, we're getting close with wildfire uh, weather and we're getting close. The, the utilities are freaked out. Uh, they're doing uh, public safety power shutdowns uh, throughout the state and I'm not sure. It's not with good reason. I know there's good intention there. There's there's also some other uh, concerns about their own cost. I understand that, but it is public safety, power shutdown, and people are up in arms in some areas about that. And again, it's an inconvenience thing. Your power might not be back on for a week, um, but if it stops that fire from starting right. upwind of your location californians need to wake up and realize that every acre in california can and will burn someday yes
4: but it's your reference to things like hurricanes with climate change that make this a national topic about our our entire societal response to natural hazards because in the case of hurricanes their paths the number and frequency of high intensity hurricanes The evidence is mounting from scientists that I I know personally that um, we're going to see other natural hazards uh, hitting us with greater frequency in the same way that we're experiencing fire. Tom Porter, we've heard
1: some things about the role of wind speed. Tell us how how important that is and how the wind speeds
2: we're seeing now in these fires are, are different or than what you've seen earlier. What we're seeing is as as wind speed increases and it depends on the depth of the wind too how far up in the atmosphere or uh, close to the surface, those those uh, sources of wind are. But in a lot of cases, we are seeing winds that are carrying high altitude speeds at a lower altitude, if that makes sense, and carrying embers and fire much further and faster than than normal. And just in the in the case of the campfire that burned Paradise, Megalia, Concow and other communities, um, there's a dogleg or a bend in the Feather River Canyon where this fire started. And typically the winds, even with a moderate kind of uh, northeast wind, would funnel down the canyon. And that's not what happened in this case. The fire went straight up and over two ridges and ended up in paradise in two hours. The fires that happened prior to this, and this is what I was talking about previously with what we have modeled is not what's happening. We modeled what we expected to happen based on the past. And that's not what's been happening. So those fires usually would have done a turn a little bit to the south and gone more toward uh, Oroville, Lake Oroville and uh, and then would have come up into the community from a different place. That's not what happened. So so the wind wind speed, uh, the frequency of of these uh, phone winds, east winds that are coming off of the dry landmass uh, there. That is making a difference as well.
1: If you're just joining us, we're talking about the fires in Northern California with Tom Porter, Chief Strategic Planning at CAL FIRE, Keith Gillis, Chair of the California Board of Forestry, and Maggie Kelly, Professor of Environmental Science Policy at Berkeley. I'm Greg Dalton. Maggie Kelly, fire you know, has always been here in California, we've been hearing, but it, it came into the Bay Area in our lives and our lungs in a way that it really hadn't before this year for such a long period of time. You know, air quality like like Beijing, put, you know, seeing respiratory masks on, on, on young people. Tell us about how that, you know, kind of punctured our consciousness and brought something that used to be over there into our lungs and our lives.
3: I think that's absolutely true. Those 10 to 12 days, I think, really changed all of our minds about fire and just the horror that was coming uh, through the media we were hearing about what was happening in paradise and then seeing what was happening down in malibu on the on the heels really of last year's sonoma napa fire complex it was eye-opening to everybody in a very visceral way i as a mapper and a technologist i also was just incredibly amazed at the way every single person I was talking to was looking at um, purple air, was looking at the earth wind patterns, trying to anticipate when the winds were going to shift. Everybody was talking about this as a connected. um, We were connected to those people in paradise. We were connected to everybody. I think it it really grounded us um, in a way I personally I think California, I know we're at the cutting edge of climate change in terms of its impact, and I believe we're at the cutting edge of climate change in terms of adaptation, and I think we can make FIRE a huge part of that statewide portfolio. I'd like to see much more um, statewide money being put to all of the things we're talking about, but also the science communication, how do we do outreach, how do we have smarter, um, FIRE-safe communities, how do we spread the message pre during and post fires, and of course, I think maps are part of all of that. But I, um, I really think. This has been a it's been a game changer year and we've got to make some changes. Tom
1: Porter, you're focused a lot on, you know, the fires ahead. But I'd like to quote something I saw on Next Door, which is this application for neighborhoods here in San Francisco, where people went on and they said, hey, I'd like to suggest that you don't burn wood in your fireplace this year. Because one person said "We're, we're all where people are traumatized from fires and smoke. It'd be great if people didn't burn fires in their fireplaces these days and there was a robust debate about it going gas, et cetera. You mm-hmm. deal with the post fire trauma all the time. Is that coming into consciousness in urban areas?
2: Yes. Uh, and and that's something that that we see pretty regularly. People who have, have had kind of a visceral uh, response um, to something that's that's been scary or uncomfortable. Uh, in, and in this case, for a, a very long term, that smell of smoke um, does bring back all of those thoughts, memories and concerns. I'm afraid if we go too far down that road, we, we, we need to remember that there's good smoke and bad smoke. And on a day like today, uh, we have a cool, more damp kind of condition that's going on. Uh, And we need to be able to utilize those kind of days for some of the fuel work that I was talking about now burning uh, fuel wood in your fireplace. um, That's something that that brings back a a very warm feeling to many of us as well. And I think it's an important, uh, important piece of our our, uh, psyche to be able to be close to and and with fire. And I think we need we still need to have that uh, opportunity Uh, But again, for the broader public good, there are uh, air quality issues that we need to watch for. And then we also need to look at uh, managing our environment as well.
1: Keith Gillis, one innovation that's coming forward is something called the Forest Resilience Bond, which is $4 million. Oh. There's a couple of foundations, an investment firm and an insurance company trying to get people to make money by raking the forest or, or, or uh, at least, you know, cl- clearing up the forest. And those, so this is because, let's be clear, I mean, Cal Fire and the government's not going to have enough money uh, to, to do all this. So is there a way for, for markets to come in and for there to be profit and kind of uh, reducing fuel levels in forests?
4: Uh, I am an economist, so I am always thinking how do you do this other than just on Mm -hmm. the general public ledger? Um, Yeah, so they just had the first forest bond uh, close, I believe, last week. And the idea there is that there are parties like water districts that would benefit from the fact that there's a direct relationship between forest stocking uh, and water yield from a watershed. Uh, Some of the earliest experiments in hydrology uh, at Hubbard Brook showed that linkage very clearly. There's also uh, the issue of a more resilient landscape with lower uh, stocking could result in less sediment and uh, debris moving into water impoundments, which is a major cost You you try and manage the soils very carefully around water impoundments in order to uh, maintain the capacity of the reservoirs uh, underneath them. And so, yeah, there's there's some cases where uh, if we can establish a credible link between the costs of, say, a water district or an insurance company and activities in the forest, that there's an additional source of fund in addition to uh, the... uh, you know, cap and trade funds or whatever that the state is using um, to do work like this. And that same principle extends to if we can have a viable uh, uh, source of uh, wood coming, especially off the public lands, that could support a biomass energy. uh, it, It could well be that people will make the 10 to $100 million investment in facilities that will utilize some of that material and make the drain on the public coffers to do vegetation management uh, proximate to communities uh, quite a bit reduced. So market solutions are always great.
0: Greg Dalton has been talking about the new abnormal wildfires with Keith Gillis, Chair of the California Board of Forestry and Fire Protection, Maggie Kelly, Professor of Environmental Science Policy at UC Berkeley, and Tom Porter, chief of strategic planning at the california department of forestry and fire cal fire to hear all our climate one conversations subscribe to our podcast at our website climateone.org where you'll also find photos video clips and more if you like the program please let us know by writing a review on itunes or wherever you get your podcasts and join us next year for more conversations about energy the economy and the environment climate one is a special project of the commonwealth club of california
1: Kelly Pennington and Sarah Catherine Coxon run our audience engagement. Tyler Reed is our producer. The audio engineers are Mark Kirshner and Justin Norton. Annie Chelsea and Devin Strolovich edit the show. I'm Greg Dalton, the executive producer and host. The Commonwealth Club CEO is Dr. Gloria Duffy. Climate One is produced in association with KQED Public Radio.